Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. The Syfax family has deep historic ties to Mount Vernon and other sites of enslavement in Virginia. In 1821, for example, Charles Syfax, an enslaved man at Arlington House in northern Virginia, married Mariah Carter, the daughter of a woman enslaved at Mount Vernon. Charles was the inherited property of George Washington Park Custis, Martha Washington's grandson. And there is very strong evidence that the woman that Charles married, Mariah, was Custis's daughter. On today's episode, you'll learn more about the fascinating history of the Syfax family and its connections to Mount Vernon from Steve Hammond. Hammond is a genealogist, family historian, and Syfax descendant who has spent decades reconstructing the Syfax family's history. He recently joined my colleague Brenda Parker on a live stream to discuss his family's story. Parker is Mount Vernon's African-American Interpretation and Special Projects Coordinator, and we're happy to bring her conversation with Hammond to the podcast. Now, you will hear them discuss a number of documents and other evidence on this program, and we've built a special webpage where you can see them. Check out the show notes for today's episode for the link. Season 5 of Conversations is right around the corner. Until then, I hope you enjoy this program. Hello, everybody. Happy Friday. I'm so excited that you decided to tune in and to join us here today. I have such information for you all. Everybody that um, is here viewing, you will be absolutely astonished and excited and pleased and curious. So hopefully you've um, set aside some time. My name is Brenda Parker. I am a historic character interpreter here at Mount Vernon. And I'm also the African-American special interpreter, uh, special programs interpreter, <laughs> and special programs interpreter. Please forgive me. I'm so excited. Wait until you see what we have in plan for you today. But my job allows me to interpret and to narrate the lives of very many um, enslaved people here on the property. One of my primary um, characters that I interpreted for is Caroline Branham. She was an enslaved chambermaid here at Mount Vernon as also a seamstress um, as well. And there might be Priscilla that you might be familiar with as well as Doll and Lucy. But these persons' lives were intertwined with Washington in ways that are lasting even until today. And today we're going to have the opportunity to meet somebody that is a descendant from one of those enslaved persons that used to be here on the property. I would love to introduce to you today Steve Hammond. And ladies and gentlemen. Hi, Brenda. <laughs> Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for joining me. I am like so excited. I'm going to try to calm myself down, calm myself down so everybody can get the most out of this conversation. I'm excited <laughs> too. So you were, we'll go into this together. Yes. Would you like to introduce yourself to the viewers? Absolutely. Well, as you said, I'm Steve Hammond. I'm a retired federal employee. I spent 40 years working for the Department of the Interior, uh, the U.S. Geological Survey, where I, uh, when I retired, I was the Deputy Associate Director for Natural Hazards. So we dealt with everything related to hurricanes and floods and volcanoes and landslides. And after I retired, I basically turned my lifelong hobby of genealogy and family history into my daily endeavor. And I have just been consumed the last several years uh, studying the Syfax family. And uh, I've been doing that for well, about 50 years. I started when I was uh, in middle school. And uh, uh, so that's what I do from day to day here now. 
<laughs> that is so, so interesting. So you mentioned a, a name, the Syfax family, and that is part of your genealogy. That's part of your um your legacy, your heritage. It yes. is. Very Absolutely. good. I, the interesting thing about that story is that I had no idea how we were connected to the Syfax until I was introduced to the Syfaxes by a cousin when I was in middle school. And it started out by a question saying, did you know that you were related to George Washington? And I said, what? No way. There's no, there is no way. And so that started me on a lifelong uh, study of trying to figure out, you know, decipher fact from fiction. And I wanted to learn more about this family. And uh, over the course of the years, there's actually been a considerable amount written about the Syfaxes. And there is a lot in the literature and in documents that is, I think, yet to be discovered. And my goal now is to try to pick out everything that I possibly can and share it to kind of educate others and try to make the Syfax family, uh, you know, kind of figure into history. And hopefully, I think, have some dialogue in our society about, you know, enslaved families and those that are free. That is that is wonderful. Um, we um, use this term in the interpreter world or in the acting world called the power of place. Can you tell me about some places here in the Alexandria area and the D.C. area that are connected to your family? Some places or some sites that people can go and find out more information or at least just be in the same space as where your family was. Absolutely. So as we talk about this, I'll ask Jeanette to throw up the first slide here that we have to share. Uh, the Syfaxes have an attachment to several locations, historical locations in the D.C. Uh, Virginia area. Um, there is a connection with Mount Vernon, which is that star down at the bottom of the screen. Uh, there are a number of Syfaxes that were in Alexandria. Uh, also at Mount, uh, not Mount Vernon, but at uh, Arlington National Cemetery in the Arlington House. And also the star up in Washington actually signifies the Decatur House, which is just um, within eyesight of uh, the White House. So they've, they've covered a lot of territory. And it's interesting that they have had some connection with this histor this hist these historic historical sites that are working to try to do more interpretation of the people who actually lived and worked and died in some of these locations. This is absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Um, so we have um, George Washington's estate here at Mount Vernon. Um, that's where I currently interpret. I've had the opportunity to visit the um, uh, the uh, Decatur house as well as um, uh um, Arlington as well. Would you like to talk more specifically about any of these particular sites and, and maybe just like tease us with a little bit of attachment to a name? Let's get more into the name and, and more detailed. Absolutely. I, I, you know, there, there's such a long history here with the Syfaxes. We have, uh, you know, a couple of hundred years that we can talk about, and we only have uh, 55 minutes to, to go through <laughs> some of this stuff. Uh, but, we, but I'd like to say before we talk about the three is that we've got a congressman that's a part of this who basically helped change policy related to South Africa and apartheid. We have a couple of Tuskegee Airmen. We have a couple of uh, Civil War veterans. We have 
folks that helped to send hundreds of students to college in terms of education. Uh, so there, there's a wide swath of stories here. And the thing is, is most families have these kinds of stories. And, and what one of the things I hope to do is to encourage people to tell their own stories as they yeah. hear these about the Syfaxes. But the three, the three areas that I wanted to talk about today were the Decatur House, where I'm a direct descendant of, of Nancy Syfax. Uh, we'll talk about William Syfax, hit her father and one of his spouses. And then we'll also talk about Nancy's brother, Charles Syfax, and his wife, who have probably the closest connection to Mount Vernon and then ended up at the uh, Arlington Plantation of George Washington Park Custis. Wow, that is so exciting. I remember reading um, accounts <laughs> of, of hearing the names um, um, Maria, as well as William and Charles, yep. and being listed here um, around the time that the Mount Vernon ladies had taken over the property, and the new tomb site, the new burial site, was for um, was um, down for for Washington, and they were listed um, as being interviewed by somebody, and they were down um, taking care of landscaping and um, taking care of that particular property. So that was the first time that I heard these persons' names um, enter in into any conversation or any research that I've done. But right. please, please tell us more. I'm so, so, so Yes, yeah, so let's go to the next slide and you can kind of get a better picture of the size of this family. Uh, it's basically a poster that we put together of the Syfax family uh, that basically gives you a, a feel for really how large we are. We're actually in the process of updating this poster right now, and it's going to get longer and taller because we have yet more another generation, and we're actually been able to find additional branches of the family who were trying to um, help learn about the Syfaxes and for the Syfaxes to get to know them. Um, if you'll go to the next slide, you can see that what I did here was to break up the um, family into large branches. Mm -hmm. A branch, the large blue branch over on the right-hand side are the Syfaxes who actually descend from Martha. And we'll talk about that more in just a few minutes. Ooh. The branch that's in the yellow is basically the branch that I'm associated with, which is through mm -hmm. Nancy Syfax and the Decatur House. And then you can see several other branches that we have there that uh, basically kind of highlight. These are kind of the children of William Syfax, who we'll also talk about. So it's pretty fascinating. It's fun to try to keep track of everybody. And then it's, it's also uh, fun to try to help educate and collect information from the family. We've used this as a uh, you know way to collect pictures and, a, and kind of a crowdsourcing in order to encourage family to participate in this process as well. Did you really just say you were connected to Martha Custis? <laughs> well, my line isn't connected to Martha, but there are people that are Syfax family members who are directly descended from Martha. Yes, that's oh, true. My goodness. We'll I know that caused a lot of stir. That's, that's probably been a little bit of um, interesting contention between Absolutely. some people. Absolutely. And I think it provides another one of those places for conversation as we think about how to tell the story of our history. When yes. we think about, um, you know, how we interpret Mount Vernon or how we interpret Arlington National Cemetery, a lot of these stories aren't 
being told fully. I think that's beginning to change, and that's really exciting to see. But these folks were as much a part of the history as those people who were at the forefront of helping to establish our nation. And I think that they deserve to be in the forefront or at least close to, you know, in the in the second sentence in terms of folks that helped those folks to uh, accomplish what they had hoped to do to lead the country. You're correct. Where would you like to go to from here? I, I turn this over to you, Steve. Great. Well, why don't we go to the next slide, Jeanette, and we can see what we can what we can see here. So one of the things that I wanted to do was to just, you know, after I showed you that large family tree is I wanted to give you some context. I mean, let's bring this thing down to kind of what we're going to talk about here for the time that we have together. So what I've done is I've taken uh, that large poster and condensed it into something that's quite small. So up there in the top middle, you'll see uh, the the person we consider a patriarch of the Syfax family at this point, and that is William Syfax. Um, on off to the right, there are two women, one named Lydia and another one named Eloisa, which we have a question mark. We're not sure about her. Um, to the to the right, uh, lower below Lydia are five women silhouettes. These are daughters of William and Lydia who we'll talk about in just a little bit. And then to the left, you can see a silhouette, which is Nancy Syfax. That's my direct line. And then you can see Charles and Mariah Syfax. So we're going to spend a few minutes talking about all of those folks. And then down at the bottom in the circle, that's where Steve fits into this picture. Uh, Jeanette, if you can go to the next piece of this thing, it kind of blows that up a little bit further, I think, just so that you can see a little bit more about you know how I fit into the picture. We won't have a chance to talk about this today, but I think it's important to know that Nancy, who was at the Decatur House, had a daughter, Margaret, who was basically sold in Alexandria or Washington, D.C., and taken to New Orleans. And so my family actually comes from the Northern Virginia through um, through New Orleans and then ends up in Denver, Colorado in the late 1890s. And so it's a very interesting story to follow what's going on there. Um, do you mind telling the viewers exactly um, what what the Decatur House is and where it's located again? Um, right. Where is the problem history? Happy to do that. Let's go to the next slide. I think we've got a picture of the Decatur House here. And if you're familiar with Lafayette Square, which is right there out in front of the White House, Lafayette Square is in the northwestern corner. It basically faces Lafayette Square. If you were standing on the porch of that building, you would be able to see the White House. And this is where we find Nancy around 1835, 1838. We believe that she arrived before that, but we learned about her from the uh, the will of the person who owned it at the time, which was John Gatsby. I don't know if that name rings a bell or not, but John Gatsby, yeah. basically the tavern owner who had a tavern in Alexandria. Yes. And yeah. it turns out that John Gatsby actually lived just a couple of blocks away from where William Syfax lived. And we'll, we'll circle back to that one in just a minute as well. So how he actually acquired Nancy is not clear, but we, we know clearly from his will and the will of his wife that Nancy was owned by both of them. She lived in that carriage house back in the backside. You can see a low building off to the right. 
The lower part was a kitchen and a place for food preparation, and the upper part is where the enslaved lived in that home. Um, so why don't we go to the next slide, and I'll tell you just a little bit about Nancy. She basically was willed to um, his wife from John, John Gatsby, willed Nancy to his wife. Uh, her name was Providence. And then when Providence passed away, she willed her to her daughter, Augusta McBlair. And one of the things that people may not be familiar with is that, um, you know, we're, we're familiar with the Emancipation Proclamation, which occurred in 1863, but folks may not be familiar with the D.C. Compensation Emancipation Act yes. of 1862. Yes. And uh, so I want to share a little bit about you with that. In 1862, Congress passed a bill that basically said that all enslaved people in Washington, D.C. were free. Mm -hmm. That's right. As a part of that, they basically um, agreed to compensate the owners of those people if they were to file a petition. And so what I have here for you are a couple of pieces of paper. The first on the left shows the second page of the petition that uh, Augusta McBlair filed. And she basically said on the front page that Nancy Syfax was worth $800. And then on the second page, she describes what Nancy's value was. And I don't know if you can read that uh, Brenda, but let's it, blow that up so, so the viewers can see it at home. Let's go ahead and go to full screen on that. And I will try to read it for everybody there. It does say um, Nancy Syfax. And it says that she is about five feet, um, two inches high with a yellow complexion. Um, she is a black uh, with black eyes um, and let me see, black hair. Oh, goodness gracious. Aged about, does that say 53 years? 53 years, right. Oh, my goodness. 53 so, years old. That's right. So there's another part of this petition that actually goes on to say that she was a good laundress, that she really helped around the house. So Augusta McBlair was trying to highlight why Nancy was worth this $800. And she was hoping to be compensated for eight, you know, for her her loss. And so oh. to the right, she files this petition. There were more than 900 people that actually filed petitions here. Mm -hmm. And so she was one of these 900 odd people that basically filed a petition and a commission actually reviewed these petitions. And over on the right hand side shows the ledger of what of what she was basically given for the value of Nancy. So she was she claimed she was worth eight hundred dollars. And on the right hand side in the circle, you can see that Nancy uh, uh, Augusta McBlair received just over eighty seven dollars for uh, for Nancy's value. Now, there's a couple of things that are very interesting to me here. First of all, that there's such a discrete, you know, a large difference in terms of what she felt she was worth and what she received. Yes. But what is more incredible to me is the fact that the D.C. Compensation Emancipation Act actually paid people for the losses they incurred as a result of people being freed. Their human property, yes. More than a million dollars was distributed amongst uh, 
amongst 900 people. I should say there were three there were 3,000 people that were freed under this act, and mm-hmm. about 960 petitioners basically received something on the order of about a million dollars as compensation for the people they lost. The other interesting thing about this is that uh, Nancy actually, after she was freed, continued to work in the Augusta McBlair house until she passed away in about 1870. And she worked in a paid position. We don't know. We don't know that she was paid. She may have just been a domestic who was given room and board. And this became her, you know, this was her life. This was her life. Yeah, a lot of people um, aren't aware of the Emancipation Day um, ceremonies ceremonies and parades that they still hold today here in the D.C. area. Um, I I came upon that information myself just a couple of years ago. And so we have these moments in time in our history, our nation's history, to where different small groups of people were given their emancipation or they were manumitted for different reasons. And just like you were pointing out the difference in the disparity of, of, of compensation for the human pro, um, pro, um, whoo, property that yeah. she was given, it, it goes along, you know, it goes along the lines of you know, I put this much time into this person and, you know, this person has this particular skill and, and things of that particular nature. And I, I love yeah. that your family is connected to this portion of history that a lot of people don't, they're not aware of. They're so focused on um, just recently, everybody's been acknowledging and celebrating Juneteenth, you know, um, and, and then there's still those that don't realize that it wasn't until the actual amendment the 13th Amendment that made it, you know, solidified it as far as that occurred a year later after this. I mean, Mm -hmm. yes, yes. As as Lincoln was trying to make a decision on what to do, this had already occurred. And and I think the, the really stark thing for me here is that people were in fact compensated for the losses that they incurred. And the people like Nancy Syfax and the other 3,000 people who were enslaved received their freedom, which is huge, but, but nothing, else. nothing in return in terms of years that they were enslaved. Yeah. It's worth the conversation in our society about how that kind of plays out. Yes, definitely. Why don't we, definitely. Why don't we move on and talk a little bit about William? Let's, All can right. We go, can we go to the next slide? Well, okay, so uh, this will lead into that. So one of the things I want to share for for folks that want to learn more about the Syfax family is just recently for the Decatur House working with uh, Matt Costello and the White House Historical Association, I wrote a piece about Nancy Syfax, and you can find that on the website there at Decatur House. Just simply Google Decatur House, and you should it should come up, and it talks a little bit more about my direct line and some of the history that we have there. Uh, the picture in the middle shows me actually at the um, African-American History Museum there in D.C., where a good friend basically on the opening of the museum a few years ago wanted to try to do an exhibit that talked about the the Freedman's Village as well as the Syfaxes. So if you haven't been to the African-American History Museum, I encourage you to do so. And on the second floor, one that maybe doesn't get quite as much attention as the others there, there is actually an exhibit that's called Transitions in Freedom that includes a conversation about the Syfaxes over at Arlington. 
And then over on the right-hand side is and points to an article that was written by the Smithsonian that talks about the biracial family and the history of the Syfaxes, which I find very fascinating. And it also gives you a, kind of a, a background about the family. Wonderful. All right, let's get on with William. <laughs> so let's talk about William for a few minutes here. So William Syfax, as I said, he we consider him the patriarch in the history there very quickly is that the folklore says that he came to Virginia from Canada. Uh, I've been able to find no proof that shows that. Doesn't mean that it happened. We believe that he was born around 1773 or so. Uh, it's possible that his parents could have been sympathizers and could have been taken to Canada and perhaps he found his way back. Or for some reason, he came to Virginia and settled here. Uh, the folklore says he was an itinerant preacher, which we have um, some documents that show that he did preach and that he did do things to try to uh, convert and to help people see the Lord. Uh, but the interesting thing here is that William Syfax worked to free himself. He was able to accomplish that in 1817. Uh, this is a deed that was signed that shows his freedom. He bought his own freedom. And then later on, he was actually able to free uh, his wife, Lydia, and five of the six of his daughters that were there on the right-hand side of that uh, um, family tree that I showed you. The interesting thing that I wanted to point out here is that we've got two men, uh, Thomas Barocas and Samuel Wheeler, who signed the, the manumission deed. We're not sure who owned William at the time. We're still trying to figure that piece out, but it shows that his freedom was purchased. And one of the folks that was uh, a witness here is Edward Stabler. There in the red circles, Edward Stabler. And that may or may not sound familiar to folks uh, from the area, but Edward Stabler was the apothecary shop owner in Alexandria who basically um, sold, you know, the prescriptions and drugs to George Washington, Robert E. Lee, Martha Washington, you know, he was a very well-known Quaker who basically, um, you know, worked to free people, but also had a, had a, a, um, a business there that served the public. Over on the right-hand side, I wanted to point out that William, in freeing his daughters, he basically traveled up and down the coast, you know, we, we our folklore says that he was from Canada. We have documents that show that he traveled to New, to New York and to Canada to basically uh, talk about his um, his abolitionist abolitionist views, and he used that to basically solicit money to free his family. And the lower part of this document on the right basically shows what he paid for his own freedom, just you know, three hundred and thirty three dollars. But it also talks about his wife and five of the daughters that he freed. And it adds up to about $1,800, this around 1827, 1830. And, you know, inflate that today, it's a pretty serious sum of money. Yes, yes I mean, extremely telling. Um, when you see the amounts given here, um, also, who um, the person that um, considers himself owning um, these human beings. They're the people that set the price. Do you think that, you know, some of these prices were probably negotiated? Absolutely. I, 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 I think that William was 
you know, he probably negotiate helped to negotiate his own his own sale here. Uh, you know, there may have been a, a cost uh, in terms of what the owner was losing. And so they tried to figure out what fair compensation was. But I think William had a lot to do with trying to figure out his own uh, his own value. And so, you, you know, compare this to what we were just talking about with Nancy, who was considered eight hundred dollars. And here's William buying his own freedom for three hundred dollars. It's, it's incredible to me to think about the sales here and, and dollars on people's heads. But that was the case at the time. Yes. Can we go to the next slide and I can show you we basically. So this deed that I was showing you here is basically in the courthouse there in Alexandria. And on this particular slide, this deed on the left is also in the Alexandria Courthouse, and it basically shows one of two deeds that William Syfax actually filed as he freed his daughters and his wife. Um, the large circle at the top basically shows uh, Lydia Syfax being freed. I think it says that she was 53 at the time. This occurred in 1828. And then the circles on the bottom on the right shows William Syfax. Don't know if that was his signature or somebody who signed for him. And then on the left, you'll notice that there are two stablers that are also signatories or witnesses mm -hmm. to the, um, the manumission. So once again, William Syfax is working with Quakers to help free his family. So I think that's really a pretty interesting document. And so we're trying to figure out how William Syfax ties to Mount Vernon. And over on the right-hand side is one of the, the written documents that we have seen, albeit it's a death obituary for Lydia, but it's interesting in that it actually helps to create some connection uh, more firmly to Mount Vernon. And it basically says that, that Lydia died at age 99 and that she was owned by um, Mount Vernon, the mm. Mount Vernon estate. Yeah. And so there are some connections here that we have yet to explore. As I work with you and the other historians there at Mount Vernon, I, I look forward to trying to uh, pick this apart and figure out how William and Lydia fit into this picture. And wasn't that a recent discovery, the death notice of Lydia? Yeah. We've we've this was a recent discovery. Just only in the last uh, probably two or three months have we found this. Yeah, so things keep surfacing for us to learn more about and trying to figure out how people actually fit in. Yes. Oh, I absolutely love this. Please tell us more. Tell us more. <laughs> The, the next piece, this talks a little bit about William, We, um, but then, then there's the, the folks that actually, you can go to the next slide, Jeanette. There are the folks that actually lived at Mount Vernon that were a part of the Mount Vernon estate that helped it to run while Martha and George were actually helping to run the country. Yes. And when... George Washington died. There was a census that was taken that included all the people that were a part of his slave holdings, mm -hmm. as well as those that were in Martha's dower slave holdings. Yeah. And he was unable to free those dower slaves, but he basically um, freed his own slaves and and uh, allowed Martha to uh, use them until her death. So he basically willed them to Martha saying that upon her death, they would be free. Yes. Martha, Martha freed them a little bit sooner. <laughs> Any 
speculation as to why. Hmm. I'm going to toss that back to you. And why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, first off, let me give a quick definition of dower. Um, dower meaning um, the inherited gift or um, an inheritance given to a woman, um, either um, prior going into marriage or upon the death of her husband. Mrs. Washington, Martha Washington, she was married before. Her first husband happened to be Daniel Park Custis. And that's where we get the name Custis into the whole um, story here and everything. When she did marry him, um, because we were still very much under British colonial rule, um, she was entitled to what's called a widow's third. So a third of the inheritance or the movable property of that particular estate was about 80 or so slaves. Um, a portion of those came up here to Mount Vernon. So their first home was down in New Kent County, and then they come to Mount Vernon. And that's how these persons got to be here and entered into the story. And it's like so awesome. Now, when General Washington um, died before his death, he wrote into his will, upon my death and upon the death of my wife, I will free the slaves that I own in my own right. And he had, of course, that list that we um, saw there, the inventory list, um, save for one particular enslaved person. And that happened to be William Lee, the enslaved. Um, it used to be his personal manservant. He received his freedom immediately. But there is documentation, some letters that go backwards and forwards between Martha um, uh, Washington, as well as Abigail Adams, that says that she was in fear for her life, that she didn't feel as though her life was safe in the slaves' hands and that she probably need to make measures to right. make sure that those people that were the Washington property received their freedom as soon as possible. Um, one of the reasons why Washington stated that he didn't want to free them while he was still living was because um, during the course of the 40 years that they had been here as husband and wife, the Custis um, slaves had intermarried with the Washington slaves. So it would have been a premature separation of a lot of the families because these enslaved persons were not legally recognized as being husband and wife with the laws being such as they were during that time. So hopefully that's caught everybody up. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. It's actually pretty amazing. And one of the things that we're trying to do now is to try to have a better understanding of how Charles Syfax and how his wife, Mariah, mm -hmm. connects to the plantation at Mount Vernon. Um, if we go to the next slide, Jeanette, I'll talk a little bit about Charles Syfax and Mariah, and then we'll, we'll move our place from Mount Vernon up to Arlington. Um, at, Martha actually had two husbands. She married Daniel Park Custis first, and they had two children, one of which was John Park Custis. And John Park Custis had several children, four children, three women or three girls and one boy. George Washington Park Custis and his older daughter, Nellie, actually grew up or raised by the Washingtons mm -hmm. uh, there at Mount Vernon. So he was uh, George Washington Park Custis is born around in the early 1880s. Uh, and uh, basically, he went off to school, did a number of things that George Washington was trying to be a good father figure towards him. 
And around 18, you know, about the time that Martha is going to pass, he turns, he becomes of age and he inherits his property. And part of that property, which was part of the dower slaves, but they're also very large chunks of land that he inherited, one of which was the area that we know as Arlington today. And so uh, as a part of that, he basically acquired Charles or Charles was acquired for him. But we don't have a clear idea of how Charles became owned by George Washington Park Custis. It's possible that a woman could have been who was a dower slave could have uh, born a child that was Charles there, you know, with William, as we think about Lydia being connected. But we haven't been able to piece all those things together yet. And those are areas that have just consumed me in terms of trying to figure out where the data is that might allow us to do that. So Charles ends up being the slave of George Washington Park Custis. Now, about the same time, Martha dies in 1803, 1802. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, And 1803, Mariah Syfax is born to George Washington Park Custis and an enslaved woman named Ariana Carter. What we don't know is whether Mariah and Ariana were at Mount Vernon or whether they were actually at Arlington where Mariah was born. We we haven't figured out the place where that might have occurred. But nevertheless, Mariah Carter Custis uh, is the daughter of George Washington Park Custis. He inherits the land and then moves everybody up to Arlington and begins to build what we know as the Arlington House today, the mansion that basically is a memorial to his grandfather, his step-grandfather, George Washington Park Custis. One of the things that we know is that when they got to the property up at Arlington, the house is built between 1803 and 1818. Charles Syfax is basically a butler. He basically kind of leads and takes care of the dining room there at the mansion as it is being um, cared for. Mariah Syfax is growing up with George Washington Park's white daughter, Mary, who was born in 1808. So after he moves to Arlington, he marries and has a daughter, uh, Mary Ann Custis. And so these dogs, Mariah is the older daughter, but she's enslaved and she's basically helping to support and raise her half sister, her half sister. Along the way, she's being, you know, getting some education, believe that she's learning how to do some reading. And uh, as they get older and in turn of age, Mariah is able to marry Charles in the mansion in 1821. So Mariah marries Charles in the parlor of that large mansion uh, that her her father allowed her to do. Amazing. Again, that's saying something very, very important that people um, trying to piece together this, you know, this beautiful tapestry of your family. It's saying that it's... um, He's almost saying that, yes, this is my child. I claim, you know, I'm claiming paternity of this particular person, this human being, and allowing them to, you know, to have the honor of being here on the estate. It's it's one way he showed his love for her. Mm -hmm. And we'll see we'll see a couple of others here in just a minute. But I think that's really a pretty amazing uh, that she was able to do that. 
So they get married in 1821. They begin to have children. Uh, they, their first child is Eleanor Bertha, born in 1823, and then they have their first son. They actually had 10 children in total. Wow. The second child, William, is actually born in 1825. And then in 1826, our folklore basically said that George Washington Park Custis freed Mariah and gave her 17 acres on the property. I mean, that in itself is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. But, what, but what we have learned is that... It wasn't quite that way. History, as we continue to pick it, par- pick it apart, we learned that George Washington Park Custis actually sold Mariah and her first two children to Edward Stabler, the apothecary shop owner. Amazing that the Stablers are, remain in this, this picture. Mm-hmm. So he basically sells his daughter, and her two children to Stabler, Charles remains enslaved. So he continues to be the butler there at the house. The thing that we have, the document that I'm showing here is actually a deed of manumission that is not written by Edward Stabler, but it's written by his son and his daughter-in-law. And that's because his son and daughter-in-law became the executor of his estate after he passed away. And while there was no written document of a deed that exchanged hands, William Stabler understood what his father's intentions were, and that was to free Mariah once he bought her, bought her from George Washington Park Custis. So the document that you see on the right basically shows at the top, George Washington Park Custis has sold to, to him Mariah and her two children. But since this is... Uh, his um, since it's William Stabler who's writing this deed in 1845, which is several years later, he actually documents that all of Mariah's children are free. And if you are able to read the document, you'll see all the children's names as well as Mariah Syfax is listed in this document. Mm-hmm. So it confirms that all of the Syfax children were free uh, at that particular time. I, this is an amazing document, and it really kind of changes how we look at the picture of George Washington Park Custis simply freeing Mariah versus having given her the land that they now are able to occupy. Very interesting to me. So Very let's go to the next slide, Jeanette. So it gets even more interesting here. Um, One of the things that I could have said just a moment ago is in 1831, George Washington Parks Custis's daughter, Mary, marries Robert E. Lee. She marries Robert E. Lee in the same parlor, in the same place as Mariah married Charles. As her sister got married. It's amazing. I know, right? (laughs) It's like, shut your mouth. You can't make this stuff up. Absolutely. You can't make this stuff up. And so they're married. uh, Robert E. Lee is there off and on because he's still serving it, you know, in the army, he's Mm -hmm. going off to do certain things. He's been told to go to Texas and to go to Shepherdstown um, and all the things that he's been asked to do. And uh, the years go on. George Washington Park Custis dies in 1857. 
And in his will, he basically says, I free my slaves within five years of this date, of the date of my death. Yes. And the executor of his will is Robert E. Lee. So, so remember here, we're talking about 1857, five years from uh, his death would be 1862. Yes. And meanwhile, in 1861, we have the Civil War that's starting. That's right. And we have Robert E. Lee making decisions to stay in the Union or to flee to the South, mm -hmm. to the Confederacy. And nevertheless, in 1862, following the responsibilities that he has as executor, he actually frees the other almost five dozen slaves that were enslaved by George Washington Park Custis. The document that you see here is actually a copy of the manumission document that Robert E. Lee signed. His, his signature is at the bottom, and the larger circle at the top shows that Charles Syfax is one of the slaves that he freed. I'm getting choked up talking about this. It's interesting here to think about this because Charles is Robert E. Lee's brother-in-law. If you remember, Robert E. Lee's wife, Mary, and Mariah Syfax are half-sisters. Yeah. And so as these two men married these women, they become brothers-in-law. And so here we have Charles being freed by Robert E. Lee, his brother-in-law, which to me is just an amazing piece of information that allows us to create conversations or have conversations about how life actually unfolded versus perhaps how history is always told. Yeah, I, I noticed in some um, some research material that you'd sent me before the interview that there was seems to be some contention a lot later on in history about the um, the ownership of the land. Um, right. That, uh, yeah, that's absolutely. So why don't we talk? Why don't we talk about that for a couple of minutes? So we'll go to the next slide. So around 1863, the law changed. Uh, basically, they changed the tax law. That well, before I say that, I'll just simply say for those that are that, are, that you're watching here, you can see that blue triangle down there in the the lower left is the 17 acres that. George Washington Park Custis gave to Mariah. So that's where they lived. And Charles went back and forth to the mansion to, to take care of his responsibilities. But in 1863, uh, the tax law changed and uh, basically the local uh, folks could basically decide how they wanted to implement this. And they basically said that if you owe taxes, you need to pay them in person, and only the person who owned the property could pay those. Mm -hmm. Well, recall that after Robert E. Robert E. Lee went to uh, went south to Richmond, his wife followed shortly thereafter, and once this law was changed, she was unable to pay the taxes, and as a result, the federal government seized the property of Arlington. And in addition to that, they seized the, the 17 acres of the Syfaxes because there was no deed that showed that Mariah actually owned the property. And so by 1863, 1864, the Syfaxes were living on this property, but you could cut, consider them squatters because they couldn't prove that the property was theirs. Well, let's go to the next slide. Interesting thing happens here is, um, so this is, let's go to the next slide. We can come back to that one perhaps. 
Interesting thing happens is that the Syfax's uh, first son, I mentioned him, William Syfax, basically has been educated and he is now working for the Department of the Interior. Another crisscross of, you know, I work for the Department of Interior. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so here I have a, an uncle that's basically uh, working for the Department of the Interior. But as a result of that, he has been able to get to know people in Congress as a result of their interaction with the, the Secretary of the Interior. And he actually works towards getting his mother's property back. And by 1866, he is able to help get a bill written for the relief of his mother. And Andrew Johnson signs in June. This is basically the bill. But in June 1866, Andrew Johnson signed the bill for relief of Mariah Syfax. And Mariah got her 17 acres of property back. And so they now had a title. And in this bill, it also helped to highlight that she was the daughter of George Washington Park Custis. Yeah. It's something akin to a daughter, you know, without saying the words, they were basically saying he felt something for Mariah and as a result gave him gave her the property. So yeah. the Syfaxes now have their property back in 1866 and they continue to leave, live there for many years after that. I saw a picture of the Freedman's Village um, right next to it. Right. So um, the um, Freedmen's Bureau was set up directly after uh, the Civil War, and it was um, it functioned to help people with lawsuits and reclaiming, you know, property and uh, establishing themselves in different communities and places like that, as well as reuniting and trying to find lost family members, family members that might have been stolen Absolutely. or sold away from you. Um, but they set up this beautiful village down there. Um, in Alexandria, and we have a, a beautiful artist um, rendering, a rendering of that as well. Right. right. Yeah. It, it, we're, we're running a little short on time, but I'll ask Jeanette to go back one more slide just so you can get a sense for where Friedman's Village was with regard to the Syfax property. So it was adjacent to where the Syfaxes were. At its peak, there were probably over a thousand people that lived in this area. And people were coming north to try to figure out what was next in their lives. They were trying to learn a trade. They were trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do now? What does it mean to be free? And the Syfaxes helped to train and teach people and to support them. There were even Syfaxes actually represented them to the government in terms of trying to make sure that the living conditions in Freedman's Village were, uh, were you know, appropriate in terms of people living there. So if we, if we, you know, uh, slide forward, Jeanette, a couple of slides. Let's go to the next one. So I want to just simply point out here the connection that I had with William. You can see I'm on the bottom left and William is on the top right. And I think it, it just couple of things here shows how family have stayed connected. And I think that that's really important. It's one of the goals that I've had as a part of doing my work is how do we learn our family history, but how do we help to share that so that family members and the public and historians kind of know the story of the Syfaxes. Yeah. And it just kind of shows how important um, some of the work that these folks did is. William has a whole story behind him and helping to educate um, 
black students in Washington, D.C. that we can't go into today, but it's a fascinating story. And if you if you Google William Syfax, you'll find a ton of things. Yes. So let's go on to the next one there, Jeanette. So one of the things, so we had talked about the, the uh, um, Syfaxes get their property back and um, Mariah, at, I should say, um, Charles dies in 1869 and Mariah dies in 1886. And they are both laid to rest in the, the Syfax Cemetery on the 17 acres. And uh, along with uh, probably about eight or nine other people, there was a family cemetery there in which they rested. This particular picture is actually taken in 1930. It's an aerial photograph, which uh, it was a great find. I just really appreciate the work of the historians at Arlington National Cemetery who helped to, to locate this, this picture. But what I've done with it is I've tried to overlay the triangle, which is the Syfax property, along with the, um, the Freedman's Village, which is just beyond it. And then in the far distance, if you look really close, you can see a green outline. That was basically where the Department of Agriculture in 1930 had an experimental farm. So we're seeing the, the use of the property that is known as Arlington changing hands. All of that is basically still unused um, area and the cemetery is to the north of this. If you look way at the top to the upper right, you can actually see the long bridge that goes over to Washington, D.C. It's really pretty amazing. So I show you this to simply show how it was being developed. You can see houses that are there. You can see that people were actually living on this land. The unfortunate thing is, is that there's a, a, a radio tower right in the middle of the picture and I believe this, the, the family graveyard is right smack behind it where you can see some roads and a, and a small house back there. So it, it kind of shows how life continued to change and the Syfaxes continued to live on this property for you know, upwards of 80 or 90 years um, in you know, kind of quiet solitude and being able to make lives for themselves and their children. So if we go to the next picture, This basically shows Arlington as exists today. The, the cemetery continued to expand. Uh, and you, you can see I've overlaid the um, Freedman's Village as well as the Syfax property. The Freedman Village actually lies within what is the footprint of Arlington National Cemetery. The Syfax piece of property actually lays within the boundaries of Fort Myer. In 1944, the Department of Defense federal government decided that they wanted to expand Fort Myer. And one of the things that they did is that they took the 17 acres there by eminent domain. They basically helped to relocate people that were there. And, uh, but the interesting thing to me here is that the Syfax property is just outside, adjacent to the wall that's part of Arlington National Cemetery. The other thing is, is that the Syfax burial ground that was there, the, Mariah and Charles were exhumed and, along with the others that were there and taken over to Maryland and reburied at uh, Lincoln Memorial Cemetery over in uh, Prince George's, Prince William County, excuse me. So it's interesting that they lived on this land for as long as they did. 
but they're no longer here. And that is difficult to kind of think about in terms of the lives that they spent here. Mm-hmm. But you're here and yeah. you are a living, breathing testimony to them and to their story. And so long as you continue to share their story with people like us and the rest of the viewers out there, they'll mm-hmm. continue to live on. That's Absolutely. the way that we believe. Absolutely. We are so, so grateful for you for um, spending this time with us. We have exactly five whole minutes left. Is there any way that we could possibly um, <laughs> um, answer any particular questions or would you like to explain to us or give to us your thoughts and your opinions of, of how you feel about this whole, this journey of, you know, your heritage, your legacy that you've um, been taking. What are some helpful things that you can do to encourage somebody else that's trying to um, do exactly what you have done? So if we can go to the last slide, I'll, I'll mention a couple of things here. First of all, kind of the reasons that I do all of this is one that I, let's, Keep going. One more. We won't be able to talk about those. But the reasons that I'm doing this is that I want to explore, you know, my the personal truths versus forensic truths, you know, in terms of what we believe in our hearts or what we've been told is true versus what the documents and things can help us to understand about our family. The other thing is that I want to try to understand how I fit into this picture. And that for genealogy and family historians that are doing uh, family history, it really is about trying to figure out how we fit into the picture. I want to honor those that have come before me. They have helped me to get to where I am today, and I want to help them, uh, you know, highlight their lives and their stories. But I also want to use what they've given us to help and teach others. Um, I want to expand my own knowledge, you know, so as I've gone down this journey, I've learned a tremendous amount in terms of, you know, working with you at Mount Vernon and the folks at Decatur House. And it's just been wonderful to be able to be a part of this and to try to learn more and, and tease out more and more facts. And my other goal here in terms of, you know, trying to figure this out is trying to inspire others to do your own family history and understand and appreciate our history as it exists. So as you think about doing your own family history, you start with what you know. What are the things that you know or what your parents know? You, you, You begin to kind of develop you know, a knowledge base about the things that you're familiar with. And then there are going to be questions about the things that you know that you don't know, like when did grandpa die or where did he live and how did he get from point A to point B? Those are things that you know you want to know more about and how to kind of go out and and find those things. And then there's this big picture, which is the things that you don't know that you don't know that only by doing taking this journey do those things begin to show up and you start to figure out how can I try to add to my knowledge to try to figure out what's going on. And all in all, it becomes just a, a wonderful journey that allows you to grow as a person and hopefully try to something back to those that are around you. Yes. Well, Steve, I absolutely want to thank you 100% from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you from everybody here at Mount Vernon as well. This has been an an honor, an absolute honor. And and I look forward to, to hearing more information about your family and its connections to the world at large and everything. Um, we are actually going to take on a couple of questions. Yay! 
<laughs> the magic people behind the curtain approved it. So okay, um, yes, if you can go ahead and start entering your um, questions and we'll go ahead and address them. All right, this question is coming from Adam Carmen. Um, do you know where the Syfax name came from? And are there any books out there that you can recommend? Wow. Well, so the Syfax name came from, he was a Nubian king in Northern Africa. And if you look uh, on Google, you can kind of find some things. And there are some books out there on King Syfax. And he ruled the king, the kingdom of Syfax around 200 BC. And he was thought to be a very knowledgeable man. And the folklore that we have is that William Syfax took on the name Syfax because he, he had this nobility about him and this, this, this knowledge base that thought was very interesting. There, there have been, Syfax has been very easy to, to trace because there are not very many Syfaxes. It's a pretty unique name. But I tell you, there are other Syfaxes out there, and we're trying to figure out if William or others, you know, crisscross someplace. So it's been a very interesting, uh, you know, challenge to try to find all the Syfaxes that are out there. I, as far as books that are out there, you know, I'm very interested in trying to understand. You can see behind me, I've got a couple of things up there uh, in terms of, um, you know, the uh, lives bound together at uh, Mount Vernon. It kind of gives you some history of the people that were there. Uh, you know, um, I think Arlington National Cemetery is doing some great things. I want to say that they are about ready to reopen Arlington House as a result of being closed for two years. And so they're going to be reopening in the next few months. And there are going to be some new exhibits there for the public, which I think will tell more about the story of the enslaved, not just uh, Robert E. Lee, who was named after, but also the enslaved people who helped to make that place be what it is. Thank you for that question, Adam. We really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Um, the next question is from Cynthia Miller. Hello, frequent flyer Cynthia Miller. <laughs> what are your recommended resources for starting in or enhancing a genealogical re, um, search? Um, and it's, she says it's very fascinating that you have traced in such detail. Um, she's also done a little bit of um, uh, tracing as well and would love any comments or tips. Thanks. Well, I tell you, I'm learning every day. And I was just telling Brenda when we started this morning, I just this week finished a course that's offered by the Midwest African-American Genealogical Genealogy Institute. You can look that up. It's called Maggie for short. And I took a course on uh, African and Native American genealogy. And it is a fascinating study, but they have several tracks that are a part of this group that you can basically, if you're a starter, a beginner, you can learn how to trace your African roots. Uh, there are things about DNA, which I took last year, which have been very good. So, so I would say get involved with a local historical society. Uh, there are books that basically allow, you know, genealogy for dummies and those kinds of things are out there, but there are also specific books about tracing your African roots that, um, you know, are, are you can look at through um, Amazon and other places that are they're They're right out there for the picking. Yes. Thank you again, Cynthia, for that question. Um, yeah. We have time for a couple more questions here. We have um, from Seanal Steele. Steve, had you had any chances to meet up with other relatives through your research or descendants from other families at Mount Vernon? Um, a reunion of sorts? 
<laughs> so a couple of things here. I, I was fortunate as the Lives Bound Together uh, project was coming together to be able to meet a number of the other families that uh, were a part of that series. And uh, it, we've talked about trying to have a physical reunion uh, of sorts. We haven't been able to pull that off yet. So that's a wonderful source if you want to learn more about what's happening there. Um, so there's that piece. As far as the Syfax family, uh, it's been 10 years. I can't believe it. In 2009, we had a family reunion that had over 100 people, and we were able to take people to Mount Vernon, and we took people to Martin House, and we talked about the history. And just three weeks ago, we found another large branch of the family who we are welcoming in and trying to, their heads are swimming because it's like, well, this is huge. I'm not sure I'm ready for all this. But it's been a lot of fun to try to make the tent larger for everybody who's a part of this. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> All right. I, I, I do believe we have one more question um, um, from Lori Edwards. The documents are a little hard to see, even on a laptop, she says. Um, will you be able to post them separately after this? Um, she'd really love to read these, um, the family trees and the charts and more, a little more closely. I think the answer to that is probably yes. <laughs> we can probably make that. We'll work together and make that available. Okay. Yes. And that's been a part of this is how can we help you that are watching to ask the next question? What are things that are interest to you and how can we take this knowledge base and make our our world a better place? Yes, 100 percent. Thank you again, Steve Hammond. It's been so great to see you even virtually. I can't wait for a time when we get to get Um, back together physically in the same space once again. Um, Do be well. God bless you. Stay safe. Thank you everybody (laughs) out there for hosting me today. I really appreciate it. Yes. Again, the honor has been all ours. The the fact that you trusted us to um, help to tell your family story on a larger platform, that means the entire world to, um, to us here at Mount Vernon. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for letting us share your family story. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hildebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.